Thank you for listening to Life Cycle Podcast. I want to just inform you that I am still alive and that uh, I am on a sabbatical, I guess. I don't know, maybe. But forgive me for delaying my show, but it will start back up. In the meantime, please enjoy a good interview with my good friend, Bill Dumar. Thank you. Okay, we're gonna take the fish out the barbecue. And he opens up the barbecue and undoes, he's got it wrapped in foil and undoes it. That is one side of the salmon he caught. Mm-hmm. 62 pounds. Wow. I've never seen a salmon that big. Neither have I. The 32 pounds, the biggest I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I caught that in the straits between. Washington and Canada, mm-hmm. Straits of Juan of Hugo, where they come into, the, and and I had that on there for over two hours, two and a half, I think. Mm-hmm. How long did that sixty-two one take? I don't know. A whole day. I don't know, <laughs> but he was playing it on a steelhead pole, which designed basically for something up to about thirty pounds, mm-hmm. and he was using fifteen-pound test line. <laughs> I don't know how he got ashore. But is that like braid? Is that a braided line or floral or mono? No, no, I wasn't with him. I don't know what he had. Mm. I would have liked to have been there to see that. Yeah. I'd like to have been there to caught it. Yeah. <laughs> he probably just bought it. You're right. <laughs> you know what a, a salmon that size would cost? How much? I have no idea. <laughs> but they filleted it out into two nice fillets. Yeah. And the fillets are about this thick. Wow. And that long and that wide. Yeah. And if you look back, now you know why I won't back out of here with a horse there. Yep. And anyway, he said... Before he opened the barbecue, he said, the 30, 30 whatever pound it was, is the biggest salmon I'd ever seen. And he knew I'd caught one that was 32, and his was bigger by three or four pounds. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of good food. I'd taken and cut mine into pieces like this and, and that thing. Mm-hmm. And... They were frozen in water after I, so uh, it's just my wife and I, one of those defrosted, put it on a barbecue, and it's food for two of us, mm-hmm. and probably more than we need in a meal. Now, s- s- your son, he caught, he caught a trout, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't your son catch a trout? I thought you were telling me a story about that. When Can't he caught a, a trout. And then the guy, he threw it back in or something like that? Scott? I know he caught a walleye here. Yeah. And he had one side and I had the other side. When the girls were doing something. And that's the only walleye I've ever eaten. Um, mm-hmm. My best man and I used to go f- fishing. 
from opening day until closing day every Saturday and that's one of us have to eat have to work that day mm-hmm. and we drive up to the mountain after work so we get there just at dusk and you it's about three hours hiking and spend the side of the lake and then with a fly pole cast a dry fly out as far as you can and then slowly just bring it back like this Mm -hmm. and first time we did that it was spring and you're just starting to have insects and it'd be having a, a fish on it's about as far as that post the cat's by mm-hmm. that far out in the lake and you're bringing this in just about like that in the real back and not much so it's just moving about this far mm-hmm. and have a fish come up out of the water completely clear of the water and land back with that fly in him mm-hmm. and that was our dinner <laughs> and, and it's far enough up in the up in the uh, mountain yeah that a lot of the head will be the size like this like it's going to be about a five pound and the body is real thin because it hasn't had enough food for the water mm-hmm. and I caught one in another river and I don't remember I used a fly pole or a spinning outfit. But anyway, it looked like a normal fish. And it was a trout. And I guess it's about 14 inches. Maybe. I don't know. But <laughs> that's the only fish I caught that day. And that also was first, first thing in the spring. And... Mm. If the fish is in water where your shoe is, where your knee is, the water level, you probably can't see the fish because the water is so milky from glacier. Yeah, and, and it's moving so fast. Yeah. No, no, we're up close to the shore. And oh, okay. Where I was fishing, the river comes down and makes a channel like this and goes mm-hmm. around, and, I w- and it goes around like that and goes more straight, and I was fishing where it came out of the rapids and then right into that pool. Like a pocket? Yeah. Well, if this is a river mm-hmm. and it comes down and makes a turn like the, like this and then goes down, I'm right in here. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Did you wear waders and all that or what? No, tennis shoes. Yeah. Only get water knee deep. And you can only be in there so long and it got really, really oh, yeah. cold. <laughs> Didn't have waders back then. I was probably 16 or 17. Uh-huh. And couldn't afford them. Mm-hmm. And, but the fish I caught was, I'm going to guess, about 14 inches. Wow. And that was, a, at that point, that was the biggest trout I'd ever caught. Mm-hmm. And I took it home and cooked it. 
took one bite of it, it tastes like mud. <laughs> That's crazy, because isn't, isn't it in freshwater? Yeah. Yeah. But it's also glacier. Okay. And you're getting... I won't say the river looked dirty, mm-hmm. but... Something that far down to the bottom, you can't see the bottom. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you learn how to fly fish? My best man's dad. Mm-hmm. We were in the academy together. Mm-hmm. And he was here four years. I was there five years. He came out, um, I think he came out of sergeant. Mm-hmm. If Chuck ever comes down here, he was supposed to come down here last summer or last time. And he was going to ride his motorcycle out. And he didn't tell me he was coming. And he called me and he said, well, I'm in Kansas City area. And you're going to be home tomorrow? And I said, no. And where are you going to be? I said, I'm about 30 minutes south of Austin. We're down there for a week. <laughs> and he's not going to ride a bike down that far. Yeah. So that's another 860 miles mm-hmm. from here. Now, where does he live? I think he's in Renton now. Some... Is this Seattle-Tacoma Airport? Mm-hmm. And the freeways here, if you took the highway like this and went this way, he'd be right here is where he used to live. And now he lives back up on the hill over here. Mm-hmm. But I've never seen a new house. Mm-hmm. And you got a good memory. <laughs> if I said Dave or Chuck, used to call him Harry. Mm-hmm. Um, his name was Harrison Charles Post. And those were two, them and Richard Newman were. It was Richard Burris, and his dad, at the end of World War II, Rick's dad was a first sergeant in Japan, mm-hmm. stationed in Tokyo, and I think it was Tokyo, they was on the water anyway, and his first sergeant, he'd get orders come in, and he said, Hey, he's got people down clearing possible mines off the beach. And I don't know if he had orders for one or two, but he drove the Jeep down to the beach with the order in his hand, jumped out of the Jeep, landed on a mine, and killed him. Wow. And Rick, from the time World War II ended until his dad died, in order to get to school, he had to work through part, walk through part of the city, and he had to fight his way there and back every time. Mm-hmm. So he got to be a pretty, he's the one that taught me to fight originally. And oh, never like he did. When we were in sixth grade, one of the guys was a ninth grader and had a big ring like this and he wouldn't take it off to fight mm-hmm. and he wanted to wear the ring and 
he got wrecked. Three minutes into the fight, Rick was just crying. And he wound up being the guy that was three years older than him mm-hmm. down till he couldn't get up and stand up. <laughs> and and Rick didn't use anything. Yeah. And Sergeant Walters was a retired 30-year Army sergeant, and he was one of the people on staff. And he supervised the fight to make sure no one was hurt too bad. And at first he said, I should have made the kid take the ring off. Mm -hmm. But he refused. And Rick said, doesn't matter. So he let the fight go ahead. And you've got 120 boys from fifth to ninth grade watching this fight. (laughs) I'll tell you what the ninth grader they had the ring on it took two people to help him get off off the mat finally he couldn't stand up Mm -hmm. and Rick's standing there come on we're not finished yet (laughs) (laughs) Sergeant Walters says son I think think he's he's through yeah Oh, this was in the military. This was military academy. Oh, wow. Fifth and ninth grade. Yeah. And what? Why? Why did they even fight for? What was the reason? I don't know. <laughs> but the ninth grader was one, and he was calling Rick a sissy or something. Yeah. And anyway, it became. It was Richard Burris, because his first, his real dad was uh, Sergeant Burris. And his mother remarried a man named um, Al Newman. And Al Newman owned a fairly good sized car lot. And anyway, Rick learned to fight Japanese kids that were a little upset because of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. And and the fact they bombed Tokyo. Yeah. And I guess Rick just had it, and this kid put pushed his button once too many often times, and but he wouldn't take that ring off. He thought that was gonna be like his brass knuckles. Yeah, he he thought he was gonna yeah. knock gonna, him out or kill him or something. Yeah. And. I'll tell you what, I think think by the end of the fight, the kid probably had three ribs broken. Wow. I mean, he was heavier than Rick, but Rick was a lot faster. Mm-hmm. And if you're coming at somebody like that and they give an uppercut mm-hmm. and hit these ribs right in here mm-hmm. with all your might, and I know that happened at least four times in the fight, and the last time he couldn't get up. Sounds like Rick knew how to fight then. Rick had a tolerance for pain that, like nobody else I've ever known. Mm. And then he went in the military. And he wanted to be the first uh, ROTC general. 
Well, that was his goal. And he was an A-team commander as a captain. And it was a firefight going on. And the special forces guys, they were going to come in. And I don't understand it exactly. But if this is where our guys were, the helicopter came in and landed here. And they were going to come in from behind mm -hmm. the Viet Cong. And just before the wheels touched ground, maybe 10 or 15 feet off the ground, one of our mortar rounds, a 155, hit the nose of the helicopter, killing. The only person who survived was Rick. And as the team commander, he was in the doorway as the first person off. And... He remembers standing in the door and talking to the pilot saying, yeah, about now. <laughs> he never got finished because the next thing he knew was three months later and he was in an evacuation hospital in Yashika, Japan. <clears throat> Blew him out the door. Wow. Killed everybody else in the helicopter. And all the shrapnel that was in him had gone through somebody else first. Wow. And... I remember right, they dug 102 pieces of shrapnel out of his, from his hip down his left side. Oh my goodness, he was, he was built tough. Yeah. Anyway, you all have a good day. Thank you for listening to Life Cycle Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to me, my email is L-I-F-E period C-I-C-L-E one at gmail.com. And my Instagram is T-I-M-A-S underscore A-R-Y-A. Thank you for listening again. Please like, share, subscribe, and rate it five stars, please. Thank you so much.